0: Hey, good morning again. As we get ready to uh, get into the Word of God, I (laughs) let's see. I can scream on this microphone really good, no matter how weak my voice is. Man, I'll tell you what—it's great to see people today. It really is. You guys are my—you guys are my—my people. You know, I'm, uh, I'm blessed. And, of course, we all of us, you know, we uh, have different things that go on in our lives through the week, you know, but then we come back and we meet and we praise God and we enjoy every moment of it, you know. And so the time here is so sweet, but it's so quick. You ever notice that? It's like, wow, it's already half over. Uh, But at the same time, we take it out into the highways and the byways and the streets and at home and everything, right? So, uh, thank you. We thank the Lord for you. Really mean that. I don't just say that uh, so it sounds good. <laughs> but uh, we are uh, in Luke three. Title of this is called "Fruit That Befits Repentance." I do have the outline on your bulletins. I didn't uh, put it in the PowerPoint or get it to be done that way. Uh, it's actually confusion happens whenever there's. Uh, uh, a cancellation like the ice that we had a couple of weeks ago and that. So we're just kind of getting back to kind of a, some kind of a norm here. But if John the Baptist were alive today, would he be welcome in the body of Christ, the whole church worldwide? Would he be welcome there? Would he be welcome here? I would hope so. But I will tell you that he did come across very abrasive, In his message, very harsh to people. He uh, brought forth truth in crying out the message of repentance. The message of repentance. That's what it's about. That's the great point that is there when we look at John the Baptist's message. He preached repentance. So do we. It is the gospel, it's right in the gospel. Thing is, there's not much preaching of repentance today. Um, And that's the sad thing. That's why I said, Would John the Baptist be accepted? Well, if he preached the same message in the way that he did here, I've got a feeling churches would boot him out. They wouldn't want to hear what he had to say. But what does the Bible say? What does it say about repentance? Well, it's an ever going, uh, ongoing theme. In the, the Old and the New Testament, it is there, and it's there thoroughly. Um, we would not preach the gospel if we didn't preach repentance. The gospel message that I hear today is, accept Lord Jesus into your heart and you, must, you will be saved. That's, yeah, we want Christ into our hearts But it starts with what? Repentance. That's why John the Baptist preceded Jesus and his ministry. Because he was preparing the hearts that there would be repentance as Jesus came. Of course, he preached the same message. Uh, In Acts 17.30, the Bible says this, God commands all men everywhere to repent. That's everywhere. Matthew 9.13 says that Jesus Christ came to call sinners to repentance. Came to call sinners. Who's that? Well, he called us, didn't he? What were we, sinners? We still sin. We still repent. But for salvation is where it starts. That is what is to be done. He called sinners to repentance. Second Peter three nine says, "God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." We know that first part of that, but oh, that's right. It's come to repentance. It's what He wants. Luke 15.7 and verse 10 indicates that there is a joy in heaven over one sinner brought to repentance. Joy and repentance? Absolutely they go together, don't they? Luke 24.47, the great commission Jesus gave is that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached in his name to all people. So, our message that we are to give is repentance. It's a hard message. It definitely confronts sin. It's not popular. It takes off the mask of hypocrisy, shows what's really there. And, matter of fact, there's superficiality. There's superficial Christians that uh, confess to be Christians, profess to be Christians who really are superficial. Their repentance is not real. Or maybe they don't even have repentance. It's a hard truth. It's a harsh message. A very confrontive message. An uncomfortable message repentance is. That's what John the Baptist preached and people came to him. He dug deep into their hearts as he preached repentance. Many things, the deep truths of God Because the Word of God and the Spirit of God comes in and assesses our real condition. How would you like to have all your sin laid out before you? Well, God is very merciful in not doing that all at once. But He does show us our sin. He shows our condition of our hearts without Him. The real condition. That's what John the Baptist was after. The real condition of the heart. To really show it. Otherwise we can be so superficial, show the reality of uh, their condition. That kind of preaching today is not wanted. You know, it's an absolute necessity. It has to be in it or it's not the gospel. It has to be in our preaching of the gospel. And so we want to be faithful to the text today learn a little bit more about what God has to say about true repentance and what it brings forth. And what we're going to do is look at the characteristics of repentance. We talked about repentance last week. This week we're going to show here is a result of repentance. Here's what it looks like. Here's what the kingdom looks like. That's the the idea. So don't we uh, grab our Bibles and let's stand. Turn to chapter 3 of Luke. I'm going to start at verse 10. By the way, in verse 9 it says, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Okay, that's bad fruit. What about the good fruit? So the crowds were questioning Him, saying, Then what shall we do? And He would answer and say to them, The man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And he who has food is to do likewise. And some tax collectors also came to be baptized, and they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Verse 14, Some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, Or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. Now while the people were in a state of expectation, and all were wondering in their hearts about John, as to whether he was the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in His hand to thoroughly cleanse His threshing floor and to gather the wheat into His barn. But He will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Father, as we look at the nature or the very characteristics of repentance, may it bear on our hearts how we need to show more and more the fruit of our repentance that would make an impact on others. We know, Lord, that You know what's in our hearts, that Your Holy Spirit shows us. We are convicted by our sin and we desire to live wholly towards You so that fruit would be seen and I would be a witness to other Christians and to the lost. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. When we become Christians, we've repented. We repent. It's a mark of a Christian. It means they continue to change. We aren't all perfect at once, are we? For the rest of our Christian life, we struggle against sin. We repent, we confess it. That's what it means to repent, to change. Your life changes. You confess your sin, you're sorry about it, a godly sorrow. And you quit doing some of those things that were ungodly. So John obviously got his message across as we get into verse 10. Because the people came up and started asking him, what do we do then? We hear what you're saying. What do we do? There's three crowds here. Three three, three kinds of groups in this crowd. What should we do? Each one of them asked that. Because he preached a message that went right to the heart. And it showed them that something wasn't right. He's getting them ready for Christ to come. In the meantime, he's clearing that way. He's clearing the wilderness of their hearts. John doesn't simply say, be baptized. Everybody knows John the Baptist. He's baptizing people. He just doesn't say that. He points them to their everyday life. He points them to how they have relationships with others. He points them to their jobs, at home, amongst neighbors, amongst friends, amongst people that you love people you don't love. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of everyday behavior. And that's really new to them. Because they thought they were okay. See, they came from Abraham, right? That's already been stated just a few verses before this. Because they came from Abraham, everything was okay. Because you are going to church, everything's okay. You're born uh, and raised up in a church, everything's okay. Because I went to church. But the answer that he gives here is really Old Testament. It's really a picture of the Ten Commandments. The two commands in one. Love God. Love your neighbor. And it's also going to deal with our possessions, stuff we own, stuff that is ours. What do you do with that? You know, it, it's like uh, it, the idea is hold on loosely to it, don't hold tight. Because that stuff comes and goes. Moving on, this is how we relate in our lives. And one of the biggest, I think, signs that comes up in front of us is what do we do with what God has given us? What do we do with that? Our possessions, what we own, our money and everything. How we treat others in that concern is the litmus test that John the Baptist uses in this text that we use this morning. Now there are many other things that he taught and preached. But he hits right with this as far as Luke is concerned. He gets right to the heart of the matter. Gets to the heart. How we treat others. How we res- is really going to show how we respond to God. Because the first commandment is love God, right? Of course, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Every part of you. Well, we fail at that. We know, really big time. Have you done that all morning? Probably not. Thank the Lord for His grace and His mercy and His love. But at the same time, He doesn't leave us there. You know, He keeps changing us. Our attitudes and our actions. Boy, how those things need to change. Constantly We have some bad attitudes. How we respond to others' needs or others in general is how we really respond to God. If you love God, then you also have to love your neighbor. The neighbor who you don't like. The neighbor who doesn't like you. The neighbor is anybody. And it says in Luke 6.36, John the Baptist must have stirred them when he hit with this thing because I will tell you on the next part of this, it says it's talking about trusting Christ. Then it's it's Him, and you're either going to be in Christ's kingdom or you're going to be judged and go to hell. That's how abrupt John the Baptist is. But in this uh, Luke six thirty six, be merciful just as your Father is merciful. When we realize that it was all mercy, He has mercy on whom He wants to have mercy on. He hardens whom He hardens. He gave us mercy. If we've been given mercy, what is it that we would be expected to do? To give mercy as He's given to us, right? To actually give it. That's a hard thing sometimes. Repentance is a turning from reliance on human traits and human characteristics. It's a reliance that we're turning from, that we used to have. We don't carry those attitudes anymore. And it's a reliance on God's mercy. To rely on the very mercy of God for our security, for our joy, for everything that involves us, our hope, our contentment. And it's resting on Him in that. And that's what repentance is. It's a turning from those human tendencies to relying totally on Him for everything. Luke 12.34 We've heard this one many, many times. It's a verse that stands out in how we live the kingdom. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's coming from Christ. John the Baptist preached the kingdom of God. Preached repentance in the kingdom of God. Jesus, in His ministry, what did He do? He preached repentance. He preached the kingdom of God. He's preaching the kingdom of God. Here's a characteristic. Where your treasure is, there's where your heart is. What's your treasure? Is your treasure Jesus Christ and He is everything? Or is your treasure, yeah, Jesus Christ, that's an automatic answer, but all these things, all this stuff, whatever it is, you know, career, my possessions, my home, my car this, that, whatever, whatever we do, my job. Is that our treasure? No. Our treasure is Jesus Christ. And of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, He says, seek ye first the Kingdom of God and all these things, whatever He wants to give you, and the things that you need, He will give you, right? All these things. So we really don't have to trust in those things. We just trust... In Him, where your treasure is, it's really fundamental, isn't it? So whatever our possessions, hold on loosely. Verse 11 of our Luke 3 here now. They ask him a question: What shall we do? And he answers, says to them, the man has two tenings. Two teenix, <laughs> is to share with him who has none. He who has food, do likewise. Those are basic needs. I mean, basic, 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 basic. Just clothing. And uh, the tunic is like a, a modern day t-shirt underneath uh, a jacket, a coat, something like that. It says if you have a, a couple of tunics, give one to somebody who doesn't have one. Right? This is what he's saying here. Um, by the way, Who's asking the question? The crowds. Or do you have multitudes there? You might have multitudes. Crowds, same thing. Why is he saying the crowds? Why not mention the the fishermen? Uh, The carpenters, the lawyers, you know, those guys. Why isn't he mentioning them? Well, I think they fall right in with this idea of the word crowds, multitudes. They're, They're a part of this. And of course there are other groups that we're going to look at too. Luke is choosing these particular groups. Uh, By the way, these groups are hostile to each other. You have soldiers, especially if they are Roman soldiers or even Jewish soldiers. Soldiers can be hostile to regular people when you see what they were doing. And of course, the tax collectors were hostile to the crowds. Crowds hostile to the tax collectors. None of them really liked each other. And so, these three groups are highlighted here by by Luke as he gathers up this information. What shall we do? Uh, He's telling them, okay, you know what? When you rely on God's mercy, you can no longer hate your neighbor. I hope you as a Christian have never said, you know, I am certainly glad I'm a Christian, but I don't like people. Because if you say that, you know what I'm going to tell you? You're not a believer. I mean it. First John, if you look at all through First John, if you've ever said you've hated people or you don't like people, you need to listen to what John wrote. You need to pay attention to what God is saying. We need to do that. We can't say that I don't like people. Because he says there, if you do that, if you eat your brother, you're not a Christian. I mean, he's black and white. I mean, he does not pull any punches. It's just abrupt front and forward. You have to love people. And it is the second commandment. And it's equal with the first commandment. Because if you don't love people, who do you not love? You don't love God. And so this is what John the Baptist is hitting them with. Look at the text and see what's happening as you see these three groups. You have somebody over here you don't know, you don't care about. They're just in your way. They need a tunic. I'm not going to get mine. You might have 30 or 40 of them. I'm not going to help them out. Mercy. What shall we do? How do we handle our possessions? We have to think about the mercy that He gave us. Now, who is Luke writing to? Well, first of all, he's writing to Theophilus. Remember Theophilus? Theophilus is one who would be a Roman citizen. And high up in the Roman world, Luke... Knows that he is a high ranked Roman official. And he uses these groups here. Theophilus probably has some power. And of course, you look at the second group, you're talking tax collectors. Then you're talking about the soldiers who had power and and authority. And he wants to put forth wealth and power and authority up front to Theophilus. And he uses these groups. Luke is describing what John has to say to the rich tax collectors, the powerful soldiers, and how we are to act in an everyday manner. So, it's dealing with God's mercy. It's called love. So what he says is, I want you to give away a part of what you have. That you you have. That you're holding on to. If He has changed your life, then He's changed your life to love people. Now, it's not an automatic where you just love everybody. At the same time, you know you have to love them. That There, you don't feel it. But you still act upon that in that sense. Even love your brothers. Yeah, that's easy. Love your family. Obviously, it's easy to love people here. How about love your enemies? Remember when Jesus said that? He says, here's what the kingdom of God is like. Love your enemies. I'm not going to. Okay, well, you're not going to enter my kingdom. I think this is serious. Wow. If He's changed your life, you're going to love people. You're going to love people as you love yourself. Because that's Christ in you, so you should be ready to share your clothes, just your your basic the basic elements. You're ready to, to share, and then he says, food. He who has food is to do likewise. So you have food; they don't have food. Give them food, whatever their needs are. There, right? Look in First John chapter three. I told you about John the Baptist. Nobody likes to listen to John the Baptist today, right? <laughs> That's why I gave that forewarning. <laughs> uh, this is tough stuff. It really is. To say, well, I, yeah, overall, I, I know that I, I love people, but uh, you should have seen what I did this week. Somebody. What I thought about them, right? Verse 17. Chapter three John But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? He doesn't have God's love. How can God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. we will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him. Not just to have the Word and to read it and to agree with it, but to do it. By the way, in whatever our heart condemns us for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So there are actions. Go to Isaiah chapter 58, verse 7 and 8. Isaiah 58. Love is self-sacrifice. To sacrifice yourself. To give yourself away. To give your shirt away is one thing. To give your food away, that's one thing. And whatever else. What you're doing is you're sacrificing some of yourself there. Then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. See, that's what happens when we do those things. Because if you back up in verse 7, it says this, Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry? Bring the homeless poor into the house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? And then He gives the benefits of that when we do that. Look in Ezekiel 18, verse 7 and 8. Man, like I say, how much comes out of the Old Testament about this? Well, it's just everywhere. Ezekiel 18, verse 7. If a man does not oppress anyone but restores to the debtor his pledge, does not commit robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry, covers the naked with clothing, if he does not lend money on interest or take increase, if he keeps his hand from iniquity and executes true justice between man and man, if he walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithfully, he is righteous and will surely live, declares the Lord God. So there there's what the crowds were asking. That's what the many people out there were asking, what do we do? And so he comes up with this. He's talking about giving to the poor, the blind, the needy, the orphans, on and on. And then he goes to the next verse, verse twelve. Some tax collectors also came to be baptized. They said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? So these are these... Uh, remember when he's, we covered last week where he talked about you brood of vipers? You sons of snakes? You son of the devil? You could take it all the way back because who's their father if they're not of Christ, right? But what he's saying, he's trying to get them to understand what their real heart is. Because what the the snakes, as soon as a fire would happen, boom, they would head for water. They would go for water because this desert is going to burn up, you know, like the fires did out in L.A. and Arizona and other places, you know, you hear about those fires that they have. Well, the snakes, as soon as that happens, they are going, who warned you of the wrath to come? So there's a picture there that, that was happening. That's what we looked at last week. And so there they were. It says, "Well, how come you're coming out of here? How's your heart really? Do you really want to hear this message? You know, it's like, you don't know what you're getting into. You're, this is the message that you're going to hear, and people were flooding out there. Well, actually, they were burning to get there. <laughs> that was kind of the idea. So you got the tax collectors coming out there. Now that is really interesting. Now they're kind of separated by Luke from the the crowds. Although they're in the crowds, they're part of it, but the tax collectors say, hey, uh, what are we supposed to do? I mean, they were convicted. I mean, John the Baptist turned over the rock. Showed them, really, here it is, folks. I mean, that's plain and clear. It's like if you were in a... House and the house was burning, and somebody comes in there and says, "Hey, you got to get out." And they go, "No, you know, I've got a video game to play. I got a football game to watch." If you don't tell them why they need to get out, you're in a terrible condition. You got fire that's coming into the house. It's into the next room. It's burning up. You you got to get out. Well, if they don't believe you, they'll stay in there and they'll burn up. Right. Or else they will flee from that wrath that is coming, that is there. Tell them the truth. You would tell them the truth, wouldn't you? You'd tell them that they are in need of a Savior because they have sinned against a holy God. That's what John the Baptist is doing. I mean, he's, he's not going to leave there, leaving them hanging like saying, hey, walk down the aisle and give your heart to Jesus. Just say yes, make a decision for Christ, sign a card. You're now our member and everything's okay. That's not how John the Baptist operated. He made sure that they knew exactly. It was clear. It was concise. You're sinners. You're of the devil. You're snakes. You need to hear the truth. He did it. He accomplished it. That's why they're coming up and saying, what shall we do? Every one of these groups said, what shall we do? They got it. Did they get it? They got it. So now we're going to feature on honesty here. The tax man is simply to collect the appropriate total amount. Now obviously, people don't like tax collectors to start with. Secondly, they don't like tax collectors because they're really from the Roman government. They hate the Roman government. They're supposed to be of their own. And now, we're giving money to them? It's like we're underneath them. That's, that's bad enough. But now we have to pay money to them with their ruler on the coins. <laughs> well, the thing is, what made it worse is that there were middlemen. There were Jewish people who bidded for their region to collect taxes from the Roman government whoever the highest bidder was, was given that position. Which meant that you charge what the Roman government would do and anything else above that is your take. Do you see a problem with that? Whatever it is. Hey, if they want to give you a a little bit of a tip, you know. Uh, No, no. they, they, They make up whatever they want to get. Of course, they pay the Roman government what what is theirs, but so for that region, that's what they did uh and with the abuses that they had, great abuse, the Jews just hated their fellow countrymen, and that's why they were called the tax collectors. That word is always put together with sinners, prostitutes, the worst, the lowliest of the lowliest, and the tax collectors are there. And they come up to John the Baptist and say, what shall we do? They they knew they were doing wrong. They were really ripped. And he tells, here's what it is. Here's what you got to do. If you're really of the kingdom and you want the kingdom... He doesn't tell tax collectors to get out of the line of work that they were doing. But it is about honesty. It's about integrity. It's about their greed... They were to operate in their jobs fairly, honestly, in an upright manner. They weren't doing it. He's saying, don't take away more than you're supposed to take. They are to be merciful. You know, in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, that word merciful is something that we're amazed at the mercy of God on us, aren't we? And we try to practice it. We do pretty good sometimes. Other times we don't do so good. But mercy is a great attribute of God. Micah 6.8 He has told you, old man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? What does the Lord require? But to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. There's your outline. Do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. What were these tax collectors doing? Well, they weren't doing that, were they? This is nothing new. This comes right out of Micah. Matter of fact, all this is nothing new whatsoever. That's how far they had strayed away from the truth of the Word of God. They were religious people But they played the part. They really weren't these. I have to think of one who became a believer in Christ. The little wee man (laughs) that was up in the tree. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. Jesus says, come down there, little man. (laughs) I'm going home with you. It's funny. He was converted like on the spot. He winds up inviting all of his friends. Who were his friends? Well, it wasn't your average person from the crowds. The IRS. <laughs> that's yeah. Fellow tax collectors, that's who his friends are. And other sinners who just didn't care, who didn't have any money to give anyway, so how can they be taxed, right? right. Who knows? I don't know. But later on, we see what a change happened there as he paid back, and he more than paid back. That is true repentance. Zacchaeus, because of Christ coming into his life, was one who was repentant. A penitent sinner. had all the sinners around him. And he was so bold to tell what Christ and who Christ is and what Christ is about. What the kingdom is. Of course, Jesus is right there sitting amongst the tax collectors and the sinners. Collect no more than what you've been ordered to do. Verse 14, the next group, soldiers. Soldiers are everywhere. Most people interpret this as the Roman soldiers, and I can go along with that. There were also Jewish soldiers also. They had power, they had authority to an extent. Soldiers took advantage of their situation because they're in and amongst the people all the time. Whether it be feasts, festivals, whatever, they, they have to keep the peace. And any kind of uprisings that happen in the Middle East, they would squelch. You know, there are uprisings in the Middle East today. There have to be people who, soldiers there. There they are. There's soldiers here. He says, well, "What about us? What do, what do we do? I mean, is there anything that we do? I mean, I mean, we're not the tax collectors." And he says, "Okay, you really want to know? Do not take money from anyone by force." What does that imply? They were taking money by force. Because they could. They were soldiers. You're going to take on a soldier when they've got a whole host of other soldiers around them. They take it. It's gone. Or accuse anyone falsely. Did they do that? Sure. If you don't give them the money. (laughs) Hey, this one over here. He killed Joe over there, Joseph. Yeah, they just made it up. And then he says, this is interesting, be content with your wages. Why does he tell the soldiers to be content with their wages? Well, they really weren't paid very well. matter of fact, minimum wage. So minimum that all it would do is be able to meet the basic standard of living and that is it. You ever been there? <laughs> I think everybody can identify with that. Contentment is the key here. Soldier's not to take advantage of his authority. He's not to oppress the citizens with threats. Don't ever take any money from anyone by force. You know what the word is there and it literally means? Shakedown. That's a common term today, isn't it? They did the shakedown on them, right? He got got shakedown. Well... It's a little verb, but it's powerful. They were using their power and authority to force people to give money to them. Be content with your wages, what you earn. That's what you're supposed to be content with. I think contentment is a great package for us to take home too in this, right? As it applies to all. Be content where you're at in life. What God has given you, He's given you much. Be content. Be thankful. Right? That's the idea. They just got very little. And there it is. They have a really tough job. They gave up their lives for the government. So they thought, okay, well, I need more money. And so they would get it by force. And so He says, okay, you really want to enter the kingdom? You don't do what you've been doing. You don't do what the soldiers do. You're never to abuse your power for some kind of personal gain. You think people do that today? You think people abuse the power that they have when they're put in authority? It scares me whenever I see somebody who didn't have authority who all of a sudden now has authority. You ever seen those that abuse that authority? All of a sudden it's like they're the man. <laughs> the temptation here is for both of these professions, the tax collectors, the military. The temptation is to use the power that they have, their love of money, to use it for themselves, to, to make some kind of a gain. Hebrews 13.5 This is a great lesson right here on contentment. A true mark of a repenter is that he's content. He's content with where the Lord has him. Paul said, I know what it's like to be rich. I know what it's like to be poor. He had been all of those. Hebrews 13.5 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have For He Himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. So then we can confidently say what? The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? worst they can do is take your life. But they don't take your life. Because you have eternal life. You just go to be with the Lord. And glory. But, you know, I mean, that's the... I guess, is that the worst thing that can happen? Well, actually, it's the best thing that can happen. But in the meantime, what he's saying is be content in the lot the Lord has given you because He's given you a lot. He says, you know, we think of that Micah 6.8 where if we really love mercy, so then you will live mercy. He will practice mercy on people. On people that don't deserve it. On people who would be your enemies. John the Baptist is actually saying, Hey, where do we stand here in the day, in the light of God's judgment that is coming, that's drawing near? Where do we stand in that? People say, What do we do? I mean, he's been preaching the wrath to come, he's been preaching repentance, he's preaching the kingdom of God. And he balances that out, he does. And we'll see that in a moment. There are two things that he really emphasized in his preaching. It's about trusting Christ and you'll have glory. Or not trusting in Christ and you will have hell for the rest of your life, for eternity. So where do we stand there? John the Baptist is kind of like saying... Now this is before the time of the cross and it's still Old Testament time period in that sense. He's an Old Testament prophet even though we're in the New Testament here. He's the last of them. Of course, Jesus is the prophet. He's coming along here, but he, he's a prophet. He cannot tell the people to place their trust in the accomplished work of the cross. This cross hasn't come yet, although it's pointing to that. That's what the sacrifices are pointing to, but the cross hasn't happened. So he calls them to live as children of God, as children of the kingdom. So these people live because of their heritage, because of the works that they did, the religious works. They point us to the right direction. point us to the ultimate sacrifice. But if these things are not a part of your life, you've not repented. God is responding. He's showing kindness to others, isn't He? God is always showing kindness, mercy, Compassion. You know what? In the book of Luke, you will constantly see compassion on the miracles that Jesus does for the, the lost, the blind, the lame. Constantly showing mercy and compassion. It's always there. He had service. He had all the authority that He could ever have because He's God. But you know what? He didn't wield His power for his benefit, but it was for service, faithful service. That's what God's saints do. They practice this, they do service. James 1 26 and 27. Oh, the book of James. <laughs> oh, yeah. The book of works. Well, yeah. It's not salvation by works. We know that some in the Reformation had problems with the book of Luke. Even Martin Luther did. We excuse him. The book of James, not Luke. Book of Luke. Uh, Had difficulty with this because everything was justified by faith and all of a sudden it seems like you're justified by your works, as James puts forth. But a true Christian will have works and so it blends in with Paul's letters dealing with saved by grace. If you're saved by grace, then you're going to have the works. And so in James chapter 1:26, 27, if anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue, he deceives his own heart. This man's religion is worthless. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress, to keep oneself unstained by the world. Those things are obvious. All those things. You know, he could have given us a whole list. He just throws out some here. But here's what you do. And he says, if you're really of the kingdom of God, if you're really His, this, this is it. It's, so we cannot be a stagnant Christian where we don't do anything. Yeah, I'm saved. That's it. I don't want to serve the Lord. I don't want to be obedient. That's not a Christian. And that's what James says. It's what John says. Oh my, it's what the book of Luke is about. Luke, Matthew, Mark, John. Oh, what does Paul say? Same stuff. When he gets around to all the theology, then he says, okay, now put this to practice. Right? Very simple. What we say, what we do, what our attitudes are. There's going to be a true repentance when one sees a real transformation. And it can show up in an unselfish act of love, an act of mercy, an unselfish life or love towards others. So there is the idea that John puts forth in his answer to their questions. I wonder if they liked that. Well, I have to wonder if some got their hearts prepared. I wonder if some of them are repenting. I think so. They were wanting to know People kept coming. The crowds, multitudes. Man, hundreds and thousands of people out there in the middle of nowhere, out in a wilderness, dry and hot, barren, around the Jordan River. About a 70 mile stretch. People wanted to know where he is at. I'm sure people would direct him while he's down there. It's about 10 miles. Go down there, you can't miss it. By the way that he looks, by the way that he talks. It's like Elijah. Well, if we really are repentant, it'll show one who really follows the Messiah. One who puts their trust in Christ. As we see starting in verse 15. A true repenter follows the Messiah. Jesus says, Forget yourself. Take up the cross. (coughs) Follow me. There's repentance involved in all of that. You will follow. Now, verse 15. While the people were in a state of expectation, all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he was the Christ. Well, the message that he's been given... And the results that are happening, preaching repentance, preaching the kingdom of God, preaching judgment, preaching salvation, preaching the gospel. Wow, I've never heard anybody like this. I've never seen anybody like this. By the way, see what he eats? (laughs) This guy is out of this world. Who is this? I think he had power in his messages. I say, think, I know, because Scripture says that. I mean, he was filled with the Spirit of God, and so when he spoke, it was just like God speaking, because he's using his word. So they start speculating. Perhaps John is is the, the Messiah. Oh yeah, you think so? Did you hear what He said? Look at the power that He had. I've never heard anybody preach like this. Think they did that at the temple? The synagogues? Not anymore. They didn't preach repentance. They sure are now. People are being baptized. Yeah, He's talking about the coming day of the Lord. He's talking about the wrath that is to come. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about deliverance and salvation. Think I think he's the Messiah. So maybe John is this figure. And John comes back with a reply that is concise and clear, and it says, Nope, I am not. I'm not him. I'm just a human. I'm a man. John the Baptist's ministry is it's a two sided coin. A plea for repentance, right? Can't miss that. Preparing for the the Lord's ministry. And then also looking to Christ on the other side. Repent, same, same time it's looking to Christ. John points to Christ later on down the road. He points to Christ. He knows, that's Him. Behold the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God. The sacrificial one. The anointed one. The coming one. The expectant one. The old Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist doesn't take away sin. Preaches about forgiveness of sins. But it's through this person, Jesus Christ. So this section here, the last section, as we near the end of this, it explains why John is a a pointer. You know those dogs? You have setters, you have pointers pointer. He's a pointer. He points right to the center of God's plan. That's why John the Baptist played the greatest role of any man. He was the greatest of men, Jesus said. The theme is clearest here in verses 15 through 17. They're expecting. There was a level of expectation and whenever he comes on the scene and he's preaching what he's preaching, the, the heightened expectation is now there. I mean, it's brought up many levels. They're expecting the Messiah. Is this the one? Maybe it is. Isaiah 40, remember that? One who was crying in the wilderness. Out of Isaiah 40, verse 3. They knew about that. They knew of one that was was to be coming. Is that the Messiah? Who is this guy? When they heard him preaching. This is a natural thing. They're wondering at this because of all the power. And the results that are happening, the Messiah is synonymous with the expected one. They were in a state of expectation as to whether He's the Christ, the, the Messiah. They're expecting it it's right at the top. This is the highest expectations that's ever been in the history of Israel. Now, these people are right on the. I mean, they're looking. They're right on their toes. I mean, they're looking. This is. That's. This is it. This is it right here. One is coming, the expected one. One is coming, literally the coming one, the expected one. Look uh, in Matthew chapter eleven, verse three. They were. They knew about. It. That a lot of people have given up on it. Things are changing. John the Baptist even said this later on. Whenever he's arrested, and he's thinking, "Wow, I thought he was the one. Is he? Is he really the one? You know, he, he's, I'm arrested. I hear I was to be preaching repentance, and I get arrested, put in jail. Who knows? They may cut my head off. Which They, they did. So he says, "Hey, disciples, go and ask him if he's the expected, if he's the Messiah." Here it says, "Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? Did I I miss the boat? I I thought it was you, but maybe it's not. Why am I here? I don't think he was. There was a doubt there, but I don't think he's really doubting his salvation or doubting Christ. But there is the sense of what's going on. How is this happening? Have we ever been there?" Oh boy, he might be there right now. Why is this happening? If you are of the Lord, he has your back. Anyway, we know how Jesus replied to him. He says, John will know this. Tell him this. Tell him what you, you, you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them. Blessed is he who doesn't take offense at me. That's all he had to say because he had been the one healing them and, and John the Baptist gets that message back. Oh, okay. I understand. I know. Look in Luke 7, verse 18 through 22. 7, Luke... Verse 18. Disciples of John reported to him about all these things. Summoning two of his disciples, John sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the expected one? Or do we look for someone else? There it is again. We see Luke reporting this same incident. The expected one. So when we look in our Luke 3, in our text there, now while the people were in a state of expectation, they're wondering, that's what this is all about. We too are expecting Christ. Only it's the second coming. And I think sometimes we really get on our tiptoes, you know, any day. It could be any time, right? That's that's good. And and sometimes we even give him permission to come back. Lord, you can come back now, right now. Of course, he's only going to do it in his time. And that's all we'd want. We don't want him to do it out of time. Say, Lord, come back, and boom, boom, he's right there. That's not the plan that he has, but he will do it. I think it's very soon. I'm going to keep saying that. I think it's really, really soon. I think it's really, 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 really soon. But even if it's not, it's still soon. Because <laughs> he says in the latter days, in the last days, which has been for 2,000 years now, but it's, we're much closer than ever before. So we're expecting him. So that's well, I think our expectation has been heightened because of all the things that are going on, right? Politically and a lot of other things. Uh, verse sixteen: John answered, he says, "Okay, I'll tell you. As for me, I baptize you with water, Jordan River." But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. Who's the wheat? That's us. It's believers, right? And, who's the chaff? But He'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. It's part of His message. Glory or hell. I think He's saying, there's one coming. You have to put your trust in Him. or here's the results. There's only two. And, it's really dealing with the superiority of Jesus. He's much superior than John the Baptist. We're in the same mold as John the Baptist. We're mere men, people. He has nothing to do with God. He proves that He's God. He's the, the Messiah is God. He's one who's coming. He's mightier than I. John the Baptist is pretty mighty. What, what's he talking about there? Well, I think more of personal authority He had authority there, people were coming to him, but he wasn't worthy to untie his sandals, to tie them, to untie them. Uh, This illustration carries great power of who he is, because John the Baptist, people really looked to him. This is quite demanding to be at that kind of low level, to untie to tie one's sandals, to untie to take off their sandals and even wash their feet. That's the lowliest of the lowest jobs. And he says, I'm not even worthy to do that. John the Baptist, you're not even worthy? I'm not worthy to be around him. I think we all Would have to say that we are not worthy at all to even do the lowest of the lowest of serving of him. What he's doing, he he, he's highlighting the gulf between human beings and the holy Christ, the God who was on earth at that time. It was he's not saying, Hey, it's too demeaning for me, you know, as a prophet to go in there and do that. No, I'm not worthy to be close to the Messiah. This is kind of like a CEO saying he's not worthy to take out Jesus' garbage even. He's going to baptize with Holy Spirit and power. John says, I can dunk you into the Jordan River and I do that. It's a symbol. But his baptism, it's more than just water. We're talking about something that comes in and changes one's life John the Baptist was a preparatory baptism, but Jesus has the Holy Spirit who He's going to bring. And fire also. Either you will have the Holy Spirit or you will have fire. Do you get what's going on there? Of course, one thing, the fire comes in and cleanses the ones who are His. The elect cleanses us. Fire does that. But on the other sense, and the extreme sense, is that fire is going to judge all the unbelieving world. That's the idea. He says, With me, I'm just a man. But when you're dealing with Him, He's God. Because He is going to give the Holy Spirit. He's the one that will grant you the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit's coming. all those who trust in Christ. uh, This is an Old Testament passage. If we had time, you could turn to Isaiah 4, 4 and 5 where you have a mentioning of the Spirit and fire together and you have uh, many other texts. And for lack of time, I'm not going to turn there now, but He comes to gather and to divide. He gathers His elect when He comes back and He divides from them what are the goats Matthew 25, the sheep and the goat judgment. Jesus is the judge. So Jesus has a higher position. He baptizes with Holy Spirit and power. And Jesus is the judge who makes the distinctions. John the Baptist is not in that kind of position. And he says, this has to be God. He's the one who judges He's the one who comes in and gives the Holy Spirit to His people. He draws up an illustration just to finish this up with. And this has Old Testament roots. see it quite frequently. Out of Job and Proverbs and Isaiah and Jeremiah, the key image here is of sifting. He sifts. It's the separation Jesus makes between people. The difference between John and Jesus, John's just a prophet, man-prophet. Jesus is the judge. Jesus is stronger. He's the one who has authority. Picture of Jesus here is the ultimate judge and they use the illustration of the the pitchfork for instance goes in and you can now take this and this you know we're talking about wheat right here throw it up on the threshing floor and of course the wind comes along blows the chaff. What's really real there is the wheat that it's been divided. They knew that. They did this all the time. People were familiar with that illustration. And uh, that's showing that he's the winnower there. He is the one who makes the, uh, the difference. Winning fork is in hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. To Christians, that is comforting. Thank you, Lord for making me what is true wheat, putting me in the barn. But He'll burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Everlasting fire. Jesus spoke about the eternal punishment. Fire. The lake of fire. We get the idea of what fire does, don't we? To burn eternally. And so, we do well to emulate... John's respect for Jesus. This is John the Baptist with all that power, with all the thousands of people out there coming to him. He says, I'm not him at all. I have this message that was given to me from God, but he's coming. And he has such power to save people and power to send them to hell. John the Baptist doesn't have that. Pharisees, Sadducees don't have that kind of power. Nobody has that power but God Himself. He says, I'm not Him. He is God. Do you you see how clear that is? They have to admit. (laughs) Okay, it's not you. Keep preaching, brother. (laughs) We do well to take that same respect for our Jesus and knowing and thanking Him, if you are of His, you are of the wheat. You're not the chaff. And to see His total commitment, total commitment to Him and His uniqueness, in fact, doing so is the matter between life and death. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this true message that John the Baptist gave. And we, uh, Lord... Are overwhelmed by it and we can't help but thank you for your mercy your grace your love you are the one who prepared our hearts you are the one who grants us and have granted us repentance at the same time Lord as we get ready for the Lord's Supper we examine our hearts and where we are so short of Your glory, that glory that is to come, where we will have glorified bodies at the same time we are not glorified now, but You are sanctifying us, You are setting us apart, You are making us holy. Lord, we have the decision to be obedient or not obedient if we are Christians. But we must remember that You are making us like Christ. Help us to be like Him in all these matters of this love where we love God with every ounce of our being because of the Holy Spirit who is in us and we love our neighbors and to be able to do what You have called us to do in serving. In Your Son's name, this Expected One, the Messiah. Amen.